in the olden days, one of my jobs back in, oh, that was probably the early 70s, I was on the lineup crew, and when we had something like um, you know, Kamal and the ABC show band, we put out about 60 mics, and you know, sort of basically one for every instrument, and you know, it took ages, of course, and I don't know how they actually mixed it, because the desk only had about 30 inputs. Welcome to Season 7 of the Prima Donna Podcast, Sonic Portraits of Australian Artists. This audio was recorded and produced on Wurundjeri Country. I pay respects to Elders past and present. The first episode in this series features the infamous Julie Peters, legendary in media having worked at the ABC for more than 50 years and tireless advocate for trans rights. To find out more about Julie, about the project, and to hear more episodes like this one, visit primadonnapodcast.com. Well, I fell into the ABC by accident because, well, I was already a uni dropout, you know, so I'm I'm very advanced in my age. I dropped out of uni at 19, I think it was. And what I was finding I was enjoying at uni was student theatre. And then I saw this ad for your own operations job at the ABC. And I went, oh, maybe I could just learn about television and stay six months or so and, and you know, then I'd go back to theatre. But then it turned out that I stayed 52 years. But when I joined in the early 70s, television was still black and white. I felt like there was a lot of history because nearly everybody particularly the production people and the actors, had all come from theatre because television was still very new. And it felt like, in many ways, you're working in theatre rather than how television feels today. Shows were done either live or as live in that you'd actually record a segment with four cameras. We did a a, a kid's show called Adventure Island and and, um, a soapy called Bellbird. If you were doing Bellbird, they'd actually roll the opening titles. Then they would just cut to the studio and do the first scene. And once they were happy with that, they would then rearrange all the cameras and go to a different set and do the second scene. And we'd do it as an add-on edit. And there was no post-production, so we had somebody in the Graham's booth who was playing in the dogs barking and the, and the birds tweeting and that sort of thing. And on Adventure Island, we actually had a little small band over in the corner and uh, what I remember about Venture Island, the Celeste, the Celeste gave it a very different feel to a lot of other kids' shows. So anybody had an idea, go ding, 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 here on the Celeste, and it gave it quite a cute feel. When we started Colour, most of us didn't know much about it because most of the guys had come from the PNG, you know, Postmaster General's Department. And so we actually brought some lighting people over from the BBC. They'd give us basic lighting training. And what was interesting at first was that when people first get into colour, there's a tendency to get really bright colours. But the BBC guy was very very quick in emphasising, particularly for drama, we have to be subtle because that's far more natural. And particularly in that first, say, five to ten years of colour, we had to assume that most people were watching in black and white anyway, so we had to be black and white compatible. In my first couple of years at the ABC, the first thing that actually let me do, which was related to performance, was I was a boom operator. And this is way, way before people had radio mics. So when you had six actors in a, in a set, it was always a three-wall set. 
the cameras were then sitting on the side of the wall so they could get close-ups of people looked across the room. And in the middle pretty well usually was the microphone boom, an extendable pole. I can still remember just turning. You can't see on the radio, but I'm, t- I'm turning my hand. It was quite performative in that you actually had to fit into the flow of the actor's performance to get the audio correct. The other thing which I also learnt about was that, that if somebody was in a wide shot, you could actually bring the microphone back because that would give audio perspective. Camera was much the same. The flow of your camera work, because you're a team of three or four camera operators usually, had to totally fit with what the performers were doing. And so, for example, if an actor looked to the right, that was a cue to either pan the camera or cut to another camera. The bit I found difficult initially was absolute sheer concentration of getting the simple things right every time, because in a way they didn't really care if you could do very complicated effects. They're more, far more worried about whether or not you cut to the right camera on the news, you know. Because, you know, if you made a mistake on a lot of those programs, unlike today when we were pre-recording because we were live to air, the whole East Coast saw your mistake. We hardly do anything live to air anymore. Although I suppose programs like Q&A feel like they're live, but normally what happens, which the viewer doesn't realise, we record an hour and a half for an hour and then you know, try and use the more interesting bits. When we started recovery, I realised that we owned about 220 PAR cans, which are 1,000 watt narrow lights. That was what was used in all the rock and roll venues around Melbourne pretty well. But you know, lighting was moving on at that stage and there were now moving lights and programmable lights and things like that, but we couldn't afford those. So uh, I managed to find, you know, just lots of really interesting ways of doing patterns with all these park cans. And normally I would pick the colours based on how I emotionally related to the music. But what was interesting, one of the lighting crew told me that um, the looks I had created, because I was trying to be as imaginative as possible, and I'll come back to how I chose the colours in a sec, is that... um, those looks were being pretty well copied the, the, that following week on Hey Hey It's Saturday. I took that as quite a compliment, but I must admit I didn't actually watch to see if that was true. Around about that time, I was also doing a little bit, a few acting classes and some singing lessons as well. I realised that, that uh, particularly in bel canto singing, that they talk a lot about there's really only three emotions, mad, glad and sad, you know, happy, angry and sad, yeah. Sort of in my head, I said, well, you know, sad is blue, angry is red, and happy is yellow. So what I would tend to do is when I was trying to decide what colours to use for a band, it became a bit of a formula in my head. I would listen to the music and go, okay, what emotion do I feel? That means I'll use those colours. And then depending on the rhythm, because yeah, a lot of pieces started off with a really loud bit at the start and, and they might do a lot of fast light changing. Or maybe it started off very slowly and then partway through the song, the emotion changed. That's how I would choose my colours. In the early 90s, one of the women who was sort of working as a casual in ABC operations just sort of said casually to me, how do you get into lighting? How does a woman get into lighting? 
something clicked a few days later and I thought, well, I should run a lighting course for women because you know, most of the people who are you know, totally at that stage, nearly, except for me, nearly everybody in lighting was a bloke. They're all camera guys on particularly doing news and 730 report and those sort of shows. And so I went to the training officer who, totally by coincidence, he's now the managing director of the ABC, David Anderson, and I said, I want to run a lighting course for women. And he looked at me and, and said, okay, let's look at this. And it possibly was, it looks good on the figures to run a lighting course for women. I don't know. I don't know the logic of how I got it up. But what happened was I managed to get studios for 10 days. So it was a 10-day course. Because what I realised that a lot of women didn't have is they didn't have like basics of electricity in terms of, you know, how many lights can you plug into the one outlet without um, you know, blowing a fuse. And they didn't quite get optics because most of them didn't do physics at school. So I gave them the basics of electricity and basics of optics and basics of colour because if you're going to light, you need to understand colour temperature and the fact that, you know, different lights are different colours. And if you want somebody to, to look consistent or look good, you, you've got to actually un- at least understand what you're doing. You can use some you know, really ugly fluorescent lighting to make some for a baddie or, or to make something look ugly. But under a lot of circumstances, you don't want to do that. You just want them to look like them. And it's interesting when we look at a human face and the human face is moving in lighting, we remember the shape. We don't remember the way the lighting is on the face. And so that, you know, when, when there's really steep lighting above a face, there's actually quite deep shadows around the eyes and that sort of stuff. And I, I remember reading about, you know, some of the classic portraiture um, painters from the 17th and 18th century. And I looked at the lighting they use and I went, oh, yeah, that, that's quite interesting. You know, and, and in many ways, I felt that that was one of the best ways to start to learn lighting was to look at paintings. And, and um, then I also started to look at advertising photos and things like that. Photos in magazines I like the look of. And so I, I might have been doing that for fashion as well, but I was also doing it for lighting to see, okay, how did they light this particular yeah, woman in this pose? Where I can play the most in terms of just looking at an individual face because to me the, the individual face and lighting an individual face is the key to lighting. I did it on newsreaders, so, you know, I would adjust the light up and down, physical height and sideways, and then I'd possibly put in three backlights. The reason I often put in three backlights is because some people had black hair, some people had white hair, some people had no hair, and so I tended to put the one in the dead centre on top of the head and the two to the side of that on the shoulders but not the head, which meant that if somebody had, you know, white hair, I could not light the hair and light the shoulders and make that the backlight. Whereas other people I might put all three up, particularly in the 80s with with a lot of women with big hair, I could go crazy. But then what would happen is you had to then take into account that particularly in the early 80s, we were still going crazy with chroma key or green screen or blue screen as it's now called. And they weren't very good in those days. You get really rough edges around here, particularly if somebody with really curly hair, it was really hard to get a good key. In some studios, we could only do one colour because the studio was wired that way. So if somebody came in with blue eyes and you had a blue screen behind them, you then had to be really careful about you know, not having the picture showing through their eyes. 
because of the era I was in, we're all expected to do out, you know, outside broadcasts as well as studios, as well as the news, as well as spending a bit of time in telecine, rolling films to air or whatever. I mean, the first OB I went to was was a running carnival, but they wouldn't trust me with anything. So all I got to do was the graphic, which sort of said ABC at the end and the name of the swimmer or the name of the presenter or something. In those days, we didn't have a graphic generator. We actually had cardboard graphics, like Letra set on black card, which cameras pointed at. And then the vision mixer would would combine them. And we did that live. And we even you know, we did the news that way too. Each camera in the newsroom could pan to a, a graphic stand. And so you know, the graphics people were making you know, Letra set graphics all afternoon for, for whatever stories were on. With the lighting courses for women, I, I took the attitude that a lot of it wasn't about them beca- getting into lighting necessarily. You know, some of them did, and some of them were like documentary makers. And what that meant was that you know they were very much on minimal budgets, where they were, you know, if they could help with the lighting, it meant that they could do it with just two people rather than three or four people. I think they were the ones who used it the most, and you know. That certainly happened. Documentary makers used it because the way I started, I always I started with with portraiture of a human face, and we, we could all practice on each other as well. And then then I managed to get studio crews. Yeah, we had a full a full TV studio with four cameras, and so we used it a little bit for training you know, camera operators, but also training directors. So. We had you know, young women who wanted to direct for camera coverage who would then direct the piece we were doing as well. So we had a rock and roll stage. We had a piece of classical music, which was a lutenist and two singers. And we had a drama set. So we did a three-wall soapy sort of style thing, which was you know, four cameras. And... It was a scene from a play where there was three or four people and, and we were able to you know, cut between all the cameras in, in an interactive way. So my crew lit those three events. In the first version, it was only ABC women who did it. And um, we had people come in from ABC Darwin, ABC Sydney and do the course. What I thought was also interesting, a number of the... Um, People in in news said, "Well, how come you're not doing a, a lighting course for men?" I went, oh. "I said, look around. I can't help it if you, you, nobody's teaching lighting except me. I get a grip. You know, you totally control the industry anyway." But what I thought was just as valuable is that I was actually giving people who want to be a director, for example, language for speaking to a lighting person, because of the way I approached it. And in many ways, I think that was how it was used the most in the end. It gave these women language, which meant that they could get a look they liked from a, a DOP or a lighting director in the future. And I certainly good, had a good feedback about that. In fact, one of the women was a member of WIFT, Women in Film and Television, and she went to the WIFT committee and said, wow, look what Julie did. Can we get her? Anyway, make a long story short, we did it a year later again, but this time... It was half ABC and half external industry. WIFT organised AFC funding yeah, to help bring external people in. 
and we we had some um, a lot of you know uh, industry people come and do that course, which um, I was quite pleased at that. And again, I think the people who appreciated it the most were people who were who weren't using it for lighting, but using it to understand lighting so that they could get the look lighting looks they wanted from their DOP or or lighting director. I have seen things change in some ways, and nearly always, in my opinion, for the better. But for example, there's still very few women I see on camera. But I remember the ABC hiring young women in mid-70s with the idea of trying to get women on camera. But, but in the end, they tended to drift into other jobs like editing and telecine rather than camera. But you know, certainly a couple were on camera for a long time. But, you know, camera can be, camera in broadcast television in many ways can be limiting in that it was broader when, when I was a young youngster because a camera operator could be doing football on Saturday, divine service on Sunday, and then an opera on Wednesday or you know, Wednesday and Thursday. And they were good at all those things. Whereas now nearly all crews tend to be far more specialised. You have people who specialise in drama, people who specialise in sport. And even though to me, I go, well, it's not that different. And, and, and I feel just as comfortable doing drama, sport and rock and roll. But it just doesn't really happen these days. That's one way the industry's changed a lot. One of the reasons I, I don't think many, I've seen like a huge increase in, in the number of women, for example, on camera at the ABC, is that we've got so few. Because industries change so dramatically. I remember probably in the early to mid-80s, we would have had 45 people on the camera roster. And I think maybe we had one woman for, at that time. Whereas now we've got six people on the camera roster and all the rest are casuals. Part of me is really surprised I'm still being activist. And in fact, activist at all. When I was, particularly growing up in this, you know, uh, when I was trying to think about being trans in the 50s, 60s, 70s, it seemed that there weren't many choices. If you're going to be trans, you had to pass so well that nobody would ever realise that you were trans. And that, you know, people called that high, going high stealth or or basically, if you look, think of it in a sociological terms, there's three choices. Either you can try and conform to gender norms. For example, a trans woman would portray a very stereotypical you know, version of womanhood you know, rather than just be themselves. Another possibility is, which Mary Douglas talks about, is like pollution, where you just push the edges of gender and say, I'm, I might have a beard, but I'm going to wear a dress, you know? And you occasionally see people who do that. It's really high stress to be, in that sense, polluting. That's Mary Douglas's version of the word. But then, then there's a way of sort of being a bit in between where in some circumstances you sort of pass and other circumstances you are activist or are out. When you live in the borderlands, there are some parts of your life, whereas, you know, for, for most trans people, they have lots of family who aren't trans. And so when you go to a family function, some families would insist that they were dressed back in their old gender at those family functions. 
but you know, for me, I guess, I guess I am a Borderlands person in that, you know, I look quite female. But you know, when I go to the supermarket, I don't wear a sign saying, you know, I'm transsexual. Only because I just want to do some shopping. I don't actually want to spend my whole day talking about gender to people. And to an extent, I find it a bit boring because I've thought about it so much, mainly because I had to. One of my first ways of experimenting with how the workplace would would deal with my gender nonconformity at one level, I suppose, is that when we had parties, particularly if they were fancy dress parties, I would nearly always, if it was a theme, for example, I remember there was a, um, one of the themes was you know, international and everybody had to dress in international style. I dressed as a Spanish woman, you know, with a mantilla and you know, big, big dress and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I was very popular at that party and I went, oh, okay, that's interesting. And, you know, another one, we had to go as superheroes. And so, of course, I went as Wonder Woman, which I made the costume myself. It was quite good. So, to an extent, I was experimenting a little bit with how people would deal with that. What I realised as I, in my 20s and early 30s, was I had done, is I'd separated my emotions and my logic. My logical brain, my head, was saying, you're really a bloke, just get over it and deal with it. My emotional brain, and this came from a very, very young age, like when I was you know, three or four, I just thought my parents were dumb for not realising I was a girl. There's part of my emotional brain, my heart, just felt that I'm a woman. And they were in conflict. And the way I dealt with that was just by my head and heart just not working together. So it became very, very stressful in my late 30s. And what happened was that um, effectively I had to go to mediation between my head and my heart. And so the way I dealt with that was my head said, okay, you can live as a woman, whereas my heart said, I can live as a woman. Yeah, it's the same sentence. And to that extent, we agree with a bit of a different emphasis, isn't it? And so what that meant was I got to a point where once I had dealt with it, I went, well, oh, well, I'm going to transition now. And one of the ways I dealt with my emotions during my 20s and 30s was by trying to turn them off, not have them. And logical me said, well, the way to get to have emotions is to do acting. And so I went and did acting classes and I was, of course, useless at first because I couldn't express any emotion or didn't want to express emotion. But once I started to express emotion, I realised not why emotions were and all of a sudden went, shit, I have to do something about this. Anyway, so I ended up, after the mediation, going, okay, well, I'm going to transition. So initially I thought, well, I just want to disappear into society as a woman um, because yeah, I'm fairly slight and probably, you know, and probably can. And so I actually went back to uni and finished my degree. I did a science degree in genetics. Unlike you know, electrical engineering, there's a lot, a lot of women in genetics. And I went, you know, I could be a lady scientist. When I told the ABC what I was doing, one of the managers offered me a redundancy package within about 30 seconds. And, and I went, oh. He said, well, don't you want to go away? And so nobody knows your past and just deal, deal with it that way. And then I went, if I did that, that means I'm being transphobic. And I realised I did have a bit of internalised transphobia. And I thought it would be really healthy to get over my internalised transphobia. Don't know quite how, just 
mostly by just staying. Now, I got a lot of angst in those first couple of years from, from straight guys. And you remember, this happened in 1990, so I was 32 years cuter than I am now. And one of the guys in this canteen queue stood back and looked me up and down and said, you ought to have transsexual tattooed on your head so blokes like me aren't tricked into being poofters. And I told him it's an idiot, of course. But I realised that was actually, in many ways, the case in that, you know, Straight guys, particularly we're talking in the 90s, if they found you attractive, felt they were being tricked. But then I realised that if um, a gay guy found me attractive, you know, people would feel I tricked him into being straight. And if a straight woman found me attractive, people would say I've tricked her into being lesbian. But if a lesbian found me attractive, um, people would say I've tricked her into cis-normativity. So I realised that only those who can see me beyond gender can really relate in a healthy way. But once I got through this, difficult stage and you know the first stage I st- first step I suppose was just you know portraying myself as a, as a woman at work and yeah some of the women were really lovely when guys gave me a hard time in the canteen a lot of the women will go, will go up to them and give them a hard time for giving me a hard time which I thought was really lovely too some of the guys just were, thought it was I was now sexually available to them anytime they wanted which wasn't the case So even though part of me feels I just want to rest and and trans isn't such a big deal, what what's everybody carrying on about? But then everybody is carrying on about it, particularly, and you're seeing we're seeing it in, in the UK and the US, and you're know, we're seeing um, anti-trans people running for parliament in Australia. There's an old saying, which I think is a Taoist saying, actually, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar and so basically when when there's a lot of negative stories um, being about trans rather than go and argue with them which you know, I'll just get stressed and they'll get stressed I, rather than that I go and try and do a positive story somewhere else I try and do a positive story um, to try and counter that You've been listening to the Prima Donna podcast. To find out more about this project and to hear more episodes like this one, visit primadonnapodcast.com.